Welcome back to the What's Your One More podcast. I'm joined with my co-host, Alex Stewart, co-founder of Market Distillery, and my other co-host, Daniel Halverson, area manager with Bank of England Mortgage here in Jacksonville, Florida. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Good yeah, to be so here. We got, we got a great show planned today. You know, we get tons of questions in all three of our worlds about what's going on with rates. And today, we really want to take a high level, but also a deep dive into what's going on with mortgage interest rates, why we are where we are, how we got here. What's the impact of getting here? And what does the forecast look like over the next six months? And I know we all have varying kind of ideas of what that's going to look like, but I also think we do have a common denominator too. We'll talk a little bit about that. So just to kind of get right into it here for our audience, the, the thing that's driving this conversation is right now in this market, I wouldn't say nationally is the same as in Jacksonville, but on a national level, we're hearing a lot of the, just the pause button is happening right now around the country. In Jacksonville, we're seeing a little bit of that, but it's not as firm as it is in other parts. And I think what's driving that are two types of buyers. We've got a buyer right now that says, you know what, I'm going to back up, wait till rates get a little bit lower. We'll see what happens. And then we got buyers that think, you know what, let's see what prices do. I think the prices are going to fall. And, and, and we're going to talk about that, but I want to set the stage. Those are the two buyers right now that we're really trying to, to establish, but also speak about what's going on. And then with all of our real estate partners and agents that are listening to this, and even if you're a prospective buyer and you're listening to this, we really want to tackle where we are now, why we got here, and then what the ramifications of that look like. So as Alex said in the pre-show, I'll go ahead and kick off here about where we are. And where we are currently right now is Federal Reserve meets on Wednesday, November 2nd. They're going to do another rate hike, probably 75 basis points. If you were a betting person, 99% chance that's going to happen. And that's going to put us in the lower to mid fours on the Fed funds rate. Before we get into that, let's briefly describe the Fed funds rate. Alex, you want to do a brief, quick description of that for our audience? Because I think there's some confusion between that and 30-year fixed rate mortgages. Yeah, commonly people will say, oh, the Fed raised rates, so therefore my mortgage just got expensive. Or we heard it the other way in 2020. The Fed mm -hmm. went to zero. Does this mean my mortgage is now at zero, right? Or they have 0% mortgages. And the challenge there is the federal funds rate is not necessarily directly related to mortgage rates. The Federal Reserve sets an interest rate that it's basically suggesting to banks that they charge each other when they borrow money from each other. Right. And you've said this plenty of times before. If Bank of England needs to borrow money from another bank to meet its reserve requirements, meaning you know they have a certain amount of obligations and they need to have a certain percentage of those covered with cash in the bank, they will borrow it from another bank. And that interest rate with which they pay is set by the Fed typically. And that's a 24-hour window that they're borrowing that money. It's not a long-term relationship where they're saying, we're going to borrow this money for six months or 10 years or any right. of that. It is, hey, tonight we need some more money to hit our reserve requirement and then normal operation. It's an overnight rate. Right, right. And so that's why it comes up. That's why we get a lot of questions about it. And really in this case, we think we're going to discuss more about sort of what's driving interest rates what are the factors we're thinking about? And then where do we think it's going to go? Yeah. And the news doesn't help, right? The news is not your friends. We have right. episodes on that. If you want to go into our library and hear about that, but this is an example of where the news is not our friends. They tell you that, Hey, direct correlation between the fed funds rate, mortgage interest rates, and then the fear enters the market of, Hey, fed funds rate went up, mortgage hikes coming. Daniel, do you want to talk briefly about what's driving the actual 30 year rate mortgage and, and what index or what things really our audience should be looking at? Well, I think that the you know the ten-year Treasury is really a better indicator of mortgage rates, yeah. <clears throat> certainly than the federal funds rate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and obviously the ten-year um, it's gone up considerably. Yes, have mortgage rates over the last six to eight months, um, and inflation is really what's driven interest rates up. 
Um, I don't know how, how deep you want to get into. Well, I think it's fair if you want to, you know, talk a little bit about that disparity right there just briefly, that there is a disparity between that 10-year note, traditionally speaking, and where we are today. Yeah, so generally, if you look at the 10-year versus mortgage rates, it's about 150 to 200 basis point differential, which let's just, for round numbers, if the 10 years at about 4% today, typically that would yield you 30-year fixed interest rates on a mortgage of 55 to 6%. Right now, that uh, discrepancy is a little over 300 basis points. So interest rates on a 30-year loan right now are a little bit over 7% as we talk today. And uh, the biggest reason for that discrepancy is the reality or the thought process of these large institutional investors that would be buying mortgage-backed securities that interest rates are going to come down Mm -hmm. in the relatively near future. And a, a lot of what dictates the value of mortgage-backed securities is the servicing premium that can be put on them. In other words, how long those loans will be serviced for. So the, the longer a duration that a loan can be serviced for, the more valuable it is. In this case, if interest rates were to fall and those loans pay off early via customers refinancing, the value of those bonds is next to nothing. Right. So investors, uh, of buyers of mortgage-backed securities are pricing that risk into the deal right now, basically, they're saying, hey, we want to make our money up front, so we're going to increase the uh, yield that we want and require it to be paid up front because we don't think these loans are going to be on the books for very long. And typically, when you say on the books and we talk about the investor, this is the end holder of the mortgage, right? They bought a pool of mortgages. They, being the investors, bought a pool of mortgage-backed securities. This could be a pool of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, but they put them in there, and then that pool gets raided. But they want to keep those pools together for as long as possible. But for them to start making money, it needs to at least be three years, in some cases five. And so when we think of that, there kind of explains why we had prepayment penalties back in the day was to protect the investor. But moving forward, we don't have those. So the investor has to price in, how long can I keep this loan for? And so what you're saying is that they're actually pricing this in at a higher rate in fear of they're not going to keep this loan. So they're going to get paid on the front end of this loan with higher interest than the duration of five to seven years. Exactly correct. So from a borrower's perspective, you could say, well, this is this is obviously inflated. And we know that we're at higher rates than we should be. Traditionally speaking, we should not be seeing a 7% rate or a 7.5% rate with 10-year treasuries where they are right now. Like you said earlier, 6, 6.5, that would be more of a probable range. Alex, you want to talk briefly about the 10-year treasury note and from an like why that does also drive 30-year rates because of the actual long-term investment involved in that and what that means as far as risk return? Yeah, so the 10-year is more tied to the 30-year mortgage, not because – Again, it's 10 and 30, so people might go, well, that doesn't make sense. Why are they so different? But the average person owns a house nine years, seven to nine years. And so that's a more closely related time frame. Uh, So those are are similar investments. And, and, you know, for our audience, 10-year treasury, risk-free. I think that's important to remember. This is basically saying you're going to put money in there. You're going to get it back. There's no chance of any sort of um, nobody not paying you. You're definitely going to get your money back. With a mortgage, you have, as Dan has said, risk premium. So that is what's the extra risk associated with the person who's borrowed this money not paying it back? What's the extra risk associated with inflation? Uh, if, if I'm an investor and I want to have um, money come back to me, if that money is worth less in mm-hmm. the future because inflation's happened, so now, you know, I was going to get 100 but that didn't really buy me much. You know, now I need more like 150 to buy the same thing. Um, they're going to raise the interest rate on mortgages to to make up for that. And right. that's really, 
really the issue, and that leads us into sort of our discussion of what do we think the Fed's going to do? Because at the end of the day, the Fed's dealing with how do they approach inflation? How do they manage policy that's going to affect the economy? And the outcome of that is going to affect where rates go, which impacts our buyers. Right. And so, you know, I'll kind of uh, kick it off here. And I think you both eloquently described what our audience needs to hear, which is, hey, follow that 10-year treasury. You know, if you're in mortgage lending, you're looking to buy a home, you're a real estate agent, follow that 10-year trend. On this Federal Reserve funds rate that we're talking mm-hmm. about, the effective funds rate, this is this is something that is, is essentially either um, stabilizing the economy, choking the economy, or accelerating the economy. Because short-term borrowing is what generates and kind of accelerates really a lot of different companies. And so right now, as we're seeing these Fed funds rate be raised and raised, um, that's a portion of, of quantitative tightening, you know, that that we that you hear about all the time. The reduction in purchasing of, of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, that's the tightening aspect, raising rates, raising, uh, excuse me, uh, rates is going to be also part of that tightening. But as we kind of get into it, the question is, when does it stop, if it stops, and what does that look like? And so as far as this discussion, I'll just go ahead and kick it off, that, you know, I'm a firm believer that by the end of the first quarter, April, May, we're going to be back in the fives. Some may argue low fives, 5.0. I say somewhere between 5.5, But I do see 5.0 happening, but that's a timing thing. And, I, you know, that's going to be very difficult for any person to really kind of do. It's just almost going to be in the right place at the right time. But I do see that happening. And I see that happening for a couple of different reasons. Because going back to that short-term borrowing that companies like to do, as we raise this to now four and a quarter, four and a half, depending on where we land, that is that it puts more pressure on the Wall Street firms and how they borrow money. And do they borrow that money to create new jobs, create new facilities, and then new products? And if they do that, that's how more revenue is generated for earnings reports for Wall Street. If they're not doing that because the price of these funds are so expensive it doesn't make sense, then the only thing left to do is cut your biggest expense, which is going to be your basically payroll. Mm-hmm. And so as companies look to do that and lay more people off, that is exactly what the Federal Reserve wants to happen. They want to see unemployment go up. That's another factor that they're kind of using as one of their barometers of if this happens, then we'll stop doing this. And they want to see unemployment go from 3.5 to 5%. Because they think that will stop inflation. That's why. They think it'll stop inflation because they say, hey, listen, if I put you and Daniel out of work, you're going to think twice before you buy that cup of coffee at Starbucks. You're going to think twice before you go get that extra meal that you would normally have out as a family because we want to stop the circulation of money. And that's a term that we all are very familiar with, but it's called the velocity of money. And the velocity of money for our audience is if I go to a restaurant or Starbucks and I buy a good or an item and I tip that person for that item, they in turn go use that money to fill up their car with gas that same day. That's that velocity. How many times that dollar goes through the system um, and, and the monetary system? I think the other challenge we have inside of this whole equation is that during COVID, the amount of money that was pumped down to the average consumer was night and day compared to what 0809 was. In 0809, we bailed out companies, we bailed out the automotive industry, we bailed out the pilot industry, or excuse me, the flight industry. You know, <clears throat> much different than what we're doing right now or what we did do. We gave that money directly down to the consumer. Mm-hmm. So that's how inflation's kind of gotten in there. Not only we give them money, we pumped a lot more money in. We actually created 40% of the current circulating dollar during that time. So when you do that, you're going to have people spending money more than they should. Now we've got to stop that. So the only way to stop that is to make it painful, to your point. Raise unemployment, get people to quit spending money and think about, uh, should I really buy this? Should I take that vacation? Should I buy that car? So forth and so on. And in doing such, 
if Wall Street companies have to reduce the amount of employees to gain earnings reports or not make earnings reports, how do they produce profit to the shareholders? And then how do people say, wait a minute, if we're having so much volatility in the market, and we've already kind of seen it show up a little bit, where do I put my money in the form of a safe bet? Or where do I put my money in the form of how can I make money? And that goes to your point, that safe haven in that 10-year treasury that people, hedge funds mainly, will go put their money in those funds. And as they pump more in there to detour that action from coming over, we'll lower the 10-year treasury. And as we lower that 10-year treasury, to Daniel's point earlier, mortgage rates will fall. Now, I know that that's not a permanent fix, but I also think it's going to linger for a little while longer than expected because of some of the other factors. Mm-hmm. And as you want to kind of uh, kind of lead in with that a little bit here, I know you feel similar, but also there's some differences based on inflation right now and what's going on. I know I'll, I'll chime back in there, but I know you have some differences of opinions. Yeah, so if we just take one step back and look at it big picture, again, a lot of this does have to deal with what happens to inflation. I think the Fed is in a position where they have sort of two bad choices to make right now. They have put a bunch of money in the system and they can either deal with the consequence of letting that create inflation, which mm-hmm. is right now not popular, uh, or they can try to reduce inflation by pulling that money out of the system. And that also will present us with a different set of challenges of, okay, well, maybe that causes uh, a stock market crash, or maybe that causes again, a massive amount of unemployment because Mm -hmm. that's how they're trying to stop it. And so um, I think the hard part for me is I don't trust that the Fed would follow through with that and create the amount of pain they're talking about. Now, they're they're saying they're going to, um, but, you know, you look at rates right now, 4% on the federal funds rate, inflation's at 8%. That is a still very easing policy. We are not, you know, back in the 70s when they stopped it, they got above Inflation. Inflation by a significant margin to stop inflation, meaning if inflation was 8%, the Fed should really be at 12% right now to really put a quell on it. So would it would it be fair to also ask, I mean, this is that whole argument of just rip the Band-Aid off or right. ease or kind of like the, uh, trying to stop a hard landing from a soft landing, as the Fed calls right. it. And by, what I mean by that for audiences, they want the economy to ease back into this and not essentially crash, yeah. right? So to your point, you're saying, hey, listen, we're not even above inflation yet, so we're, we're not even tackling the problem. Yeah, I think they're expecting it to come down on its own and sort of meet them because if enough demand goes away, if the prices come down, you know, they talk about Target and, and Walmart having a bunch of goods on the item on their shelves and then um, them having to discount the prices to sell those things. Well, that's called deflation, prices coming mm-hmm. down. And I think a, the popular opinion has been, okay, well, they're going to do this and we're going to see this massive amount of, of deflation, prices coming down, it's going to stop inflation, and that's that soft landing of they're going to try to balance both of those things to make it easy. The hard part is that may happen in the beginning, and when you look at sort of forecasting the CPI, which is how they measure inflation or how, a, how you can measure inflation, really June, that middle of the year mark, is where we probably will see a low in inflation just by the way that the numbers are calculated. You know, we're trying we're comparing ourselves to very high numbers. And so it's easy to lower that naturally. Uh, But after June, it starts to peak back up if there is still inflation in the system. And so to me, I say, okay, we may see inflation come down to your prediction. Mm -hmm. That may cause mortgage rates to come down in the first half of the year. But I also would say in the next half of the year, we could absolutely see inflation come back. You know, the cost to replace those goods on the shelf when we don't have enough people there manufacturing when we're importing everything from China and suddenly 
you know, fuel costs and all that stuff. I, I just think it's going to cost a lot more and we're going to come back with more inflation and we're going to see rates struggle because of that. And the hard part of it for the Fed is, okay, they can, they can cut, mm-hmm. but we've seen historically that if they tighten up and they try to stop inflation, something breaks. Sure. And when that breaks, they say, no, no, no. Okay. It's, it's not acceptable for us to just let this break. We're going to step in. We're going to help make this better. And the only way they can do that, the only tool they have in their toolbox is to put more money in the system, right. which creates more inflation. Right. So in my mind, the hard part is we either get inflation now or we get inflation later. And that's why I think maybe there's a hiatus in rates. But at the end of the day, it's hard for me to see a world where rates really do come down significantly. So those people waiting for the threes, probably never going to see that, yeah, right? Not going to see that. And so you're actually describing stagflation correct? at this point where you just really can't get over it. It's just like it's there, it dissipates, it comes back, it dissipates. And then, you know, the Fed's got their hands cuffed on what all they can do because, you know, to your point, you're not really attacking the problem. You're just, you're, you're kind of... You know, you're giving it a little bit of medicine, hoping that the cold gets better. And the reality is you need to do more than that. Well, I, th- I think to Alex's point, and, and I'm, I'm of the belief that interest rates will come down. But I think that the interesting thing that, that you bring up there is, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to know when the Fed should go from tightening to easing. And it's not, uh, it's not a good look, and it generally doesn't work out when you go from tightening to easing back to tightening. Uh, look at what just happened with the UK for a very brief period of time, but you know the other consideration here is the Fed has two two mandates. On, they want unemployment below five percent, and they want inflation um, to be under control. I don't recall exactly how they two, do two percent, two percent. So, yeah, you look at the reality is uh, for the longest that I can remember, inflation hasn't been a factor. So, of mm-hmm. of the dual mandate, they've only point. really had one consideration and really easy monetary policy has been very it's been very easy to accomplish because there's no concern about inflation um well, so yeah. it, it just as far as them navigating it right. i think it's just an interesting point that that they don't have a a, a recent um you know they, they don't have anything of a recent to compare this to Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today we're definitely not done with our podcast but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at www.boemortgage.com. www.boemortgage.com. Because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. If you go back into the 70s when we were talking about that massive rate hike above inflation, they didn't have inflation quite at the levels we have it right now from the standpoint of the quick rise that happened. I mean, it was this this all happened. I think you were you you were, you were getting ready to make mention of that. This all happened in like a four-month window. Rates doubled, inflation shot up, and a lot of people were just discounting it as temporary. 
and using the word transitory. And we see what happened there with that. Um, but the reality is the other thing the Fed didn't have to battle with during that time was, and if you even look at the 70s into the early 80s, and then you look at the 08, 09, they weren't battling with low unemployment levels. Unemployment was a problem then. So they actually had that already in the bag. I don't want to say that as a good thing, but I mean, like, they check, we've got unemployment where we want it. Right now, we're dealing with significant unemployment levels to try to get it to five. That That's also another battle. Meaning unemployment's very low, right? Yeah. That's it's, what it's you're saying? Low. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's low. So I think that there's an argument to be made, or there's even a point to be made, that the Fed's going to have to reset their expectations from 2% inflation and 5% unemployment. Because to your point, us hitting that is, I'm not saying impossible, but at the rate in which we're going, we could we could be on this track for 18 particular meetings every six weeks raising it, we're still not going to get there right away to kind of tackle this problem, if you may. So I, I do see your point on that. And Daniel, that was another great point that issues that they wouldn't have to deal with then that we're dealing with now. So I guess what we're all saying is it's, it's kind of a new frontier. 100%. Like no one really knows. This is a new playbook. And, you know, <laughs> interestingly enough, not only in this room, but also and potentially on the Federal Reserve, there are members that were riding their bikes and, you know, playing sports at the youth age when inflation was what it was back in the early 70s or back in the early 80s, late 70s. Like many of us in the business world, executive world have not lived through something like that. So it is a new frontier, new playbook. And I think it speaks to some of the other challenges that are out there. So you said something earlier, Alex, until something breaks. And then Daniel kind of really was really coy with how he said what's going on over there in the UK because I I sense like we're kind of hinting towards we're a global economy. We've known that. Right. But I think, to Daniel's point, one of the things that we've never seen is global inflation all at the same time. We've seen comp- we've seen countries like we know Argentina's had its struggles. We know what's going on in other countries, but we've not seen the U.S. and everyone at the same time have that struggle. And if I look at some of the bigger players, you know, country-wise, we look at the ECB. We look at the Bank of England and London. We look at Japan. And we, we look at the inflationary problems over there. And quite honestly, you know, their inflation's much greater than ours. And if you take a look at their central banking policies, aside from Canada, no one's really tackling it at the rate we are. Right. And so there is some danger in that too, because what happens is when other countries don't tackle at the rate in which we're tackling it, we start to see what happened, Alex. Yeah. I mean, stuff starts to go down. You yeah. look in, in England, right? What they had was pensions that were going to go default that uh, uh, margin calls, right? So, and just to sort of quickly talk about that, that means they had obligations they could, they had to pay that they couldn't pay because all of a sudden they didn't have the ability to do that because interest rates had risen so much. So the Bank of England stepped in and said, okay, okay, well, we don't want that to happen. We'll continue to buy this stuff to make sure that you can pay your bills. Um, And that's the hard part is we've been trained by the Fed that they're going to rescue the economy, that they're going to step in and and ease when it's needed. And so I think that creates a little bit of reckless behavior. We we suddenly take on more debt than we maybe should as a mm-hmm. country or, and or as organizations, as well as when interest rates were zero, we had to do that to generate the returns we need to put out that money. So if you're a pension and you got to make X amount of payments to all your members, you got to generate enough money on, on your investments yeah. to actually be able to make those payments. Right. So you're not deteriorating the asset portfolio, correct. right? Correct. And so sometimes you might take some higher risk right. more than you probably should. Right. And then you get a margin call. Correct. And, you know, just to briefly describe to our audience what a margin call is, imagine you're buying a thousand shares of a stock that's worth a hundred dollars. And then all of a sudden you want to buy 10,000 shares of that at the hundred dollars because you think it's going to go up. 
you'll leverage and borrow the money to buy the other 9,000. Yep. But you owe an interest payment on that 9,000 shares that you borrowed. And then if that stock goes from $100 to 90, which wasn't supposed to happen, but it does, now you own the interest plus the differential. So what happens? They yeah. say, hey, you got to sell those other 1,000 and pay us that differential. And there's no, there's no, hey, sell the bad ones and keep the good ones. It's wipe it all out. We're out of here. You got to pay it. And that's a margin call that takes place in about 24 hours. And they expect to get paid. And it's part of the agreement. Yeah, and that's why the market's so confusing right now is because we went from a long-standing history of having a portfolio that's, you know, 60% stocks, 40% mm-hmm. bonds because they would balance each other out. And if one went down, the other would go up. And if one went, you know, and vice yeah. versa. And now what we're finding is because there's a lot of debt in the market, if stuff happens that's not good, you have to sell everything. And, yep. and uh, to put it in perspective for a, a buyer or a, a regular person, if you owned an investment property and suddenly you had financial struggles, that investment property could be great for you, but you're going to have to sell it to pay your other bills to make sure that you're, you're, uh, you're straight. And so that can cause the, the value of that property to go down. And yeah. so that's, that's the risk here, right? right. By raising rates quickly and, and strongly, they can create a situation where suddenly everybody's having to sell assets to cover their, their basis. And I think one thing that's being missed in that part of the conversation we should definitely mention is that when the U.S. raises rates as fast as they're doing to tackle inflation, the strength of the U.S. dollar has the potential to rise much quicker than it should if the other countries don't do the same thing in their central banking system. And that's exactly what's happening with the euro right now. I mean, for the first time in history, it's the weakest it's ever been. And I mean, by far, to the U.S. dollar. If you were taking a trip over in Europe, there's tremendous savings right now using the USD, which has not been the case before. So, you know, you've got that potential situation taking place. And that is something that I think that um, these other countries have to be leery of because history tells us, you know, you go back to that 70s, 80s that Daniel was talking about, the peso has never recovered from what happened during that time because of their their central banking system did not keep up at the rate in which the United States was raising those rates during that time. Right. And so we've seen the cause and effect of what happens when that takes place. So that's something right. for uh, definitely, I know there's this looming out there in the background. And that speaks to the the last part of this topic of till something breaks, right? right. And, you know, we heard uh, John Malden write a report one time and he said the Federal Reserve, and I think this was like six months ago, he said they're fishing with dynamite. And the thing I liked about that statement was that he said, you know, you throw dynamite in, in the ocean, you're going to get some small fish come up to the surface first. But if you throw enough dynamite down there, you might get a whale come to the top. And that's not good. And, and right now the whale's one of these central banks that we're talking about that potentially could rise to the top. And he forecasted it was the ECB, and we, we know why, right? We're mm-hmm. watching it unfold right in front of us. So mm-hmm. uh, definitely interesting to watch. But as we get into rates are going to drop. We believe why. There could be stagflation as a yo-yo up and down. Daniel, what advice are you giving to these buyers right now in, in, at your bank where, you know, they're coming in and, and they're one of those two buyers that are saying, eh, I'm going to wait for prices to drop or, eh, I'm going to wait for rates to drop. What advice are you educating people with the tools to be sharp in this market? Well, I have a lot to say about this. So, um, you know, try to do my, my best Ace Ventura, take a deep breath and get it out as fast as possible. <laughs> no, take your time. Cause I think but, this is what, I think this is really the meat and potato of what the, of what the audience probably wants to hear. Well, so I think first and foremost, back to interest rates, just, just very briefly. Um, you know, there's three, there's three things that we look at to say, okay, well, interest rates have room to come down. One of them is Historically, every time that uh, we enter a recession, rates come down. Whether the Fed's hiked rates into the recession or not, mm-hmm. you could argue we're already in a recession. We're technically not in a recession, um, but um, you know <laughs> that's a that's a whole yeah. separate but conversation. To your point, every time, 
every single it's time. It's like clockwork. Yeah, the other thing you look at is uh, the yield curve between the two-year treasury and the 10-year treasury. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, you would expect to get a higher return on a 10-year investment than a two-year investment because of the risk of holding your money for tying your money up for a longer period of time. Um, but when the two-year yield becomes higher than the 10-year yield, uh, the yield curve, they say it's, it's inverted at that point. Uh, and, and that is historically a very, very good predictor of recessions. Our yield curve's inverted. The last thing, which back to the spread between the 10-year treasury and mortgage-backed securities, with it being over 100 basis points uh, wider than it normally is, if um, the inflation readings of the next few months come out a little more favorable, maybe we see the effects of the last three, four rate hikes start to you know, matriculate through the economy, inflation starts to come down a little bit, Interest rates on mortgages specifically have a lot of room to go down because that spread is, is very wide. So if, if investors feel like uh, as rates are going down that there's less risk of, of those loans paying off earlier, maybe some of that, that spread goes away. So mortgage rates come down in a more accelerated manner than, than the 10-year does, essentially. Um, so just to kind of pivot on that just a little bit, just to back up so our audience understands, earlier in the conversation you were talking about that spread that's built in there for the investor to get that guaranteed rate of return. And I think we all pointed and agreed to the fact that there's there's more than normal built in there. Correct. And so there's a lot of room for gifts. So what you're saying is, hey, imagine, imagine you know, you're, you're going down the slope here, you're, you're skiing, and all of a sudden it goes from, you know, a, a 5% decline to a 7% decline as far as, you know, pitch there. It's, it's, it's going to be quick because they may remove that guaranteed rate of return because they think you're not going to refinance at the lower rate. The risk of refinance and the higher level of retention sparks them to give some of that spread back, which could help our buyers see that in basically a lower rate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in that case, a little bit of good news on inflation may go a long way for mortgage rates. Uh, that's well said. And in terms of outlook of how we're educating buyers right now, you know, in my mind, I'm looking at, okay, interest rates started the year at 3.06%. They went as high as a little over seven and a quarter. And um, you haven't really seen, you know, the seller, sellers have absorbed that reduction in affordability with very little, and I'm only speaking to our market, with very little reduction in, in home price of mm -hmm. recent. You know, year over year, over year or so far this year, home prices are up, but a lot of the effects of the, the higher rates are, are recent, but you're really not seeing prices go down at a, at a fast clip. So no. in my mind, I feel like, hey, if, if going from three to seven and a quarter can't move prices, um, it's probably difficult to envision a scenario where prices are going to fall. So great point for somebody that's looking for prices to fall, I would say you, you may not be able to get prices to fall far enough um, to improve affordability to the level that you want it because interest rates have gone up in the extent that they have. So in, in my mind, I see two outcomes. One, interest rates come down a little bit, very moderately. And in my opinion, if that happens, prices probably go up moderately. Yeah. Uh, the other scenario is interest rates go down to you know five percent, as some of the projections we've seen have them uh, doing. And in that case, if interest rates fall considerably, I think you see prices fall considerably. And that goes back to there's a lot more demand in the market. You mean prices rise? Excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah, prices, prices go up considerably. considerably. So yeah. yeah. So interest rates go down considerably. Prices rise considerably mm -hmm. because you've got the amount of demand in the market. Uh, there's a lot more buyers than there are homes for sale. Right. And uh, what, you know, what really slowed our housing market was interest rates. You know, that's what, that's what has slowed the housing market. 
So if interest rates come down to a level where a lot more buyers are able to afford more, you're going to have some of the same problems that you had with limited inventory prices um, going up. Uh, certainly not to the extent that we had in, in 2020 and 2021. But I, you know, I say all that to say, if you're waiting on prices to come down, probably not going to happen. If you're waiting for rates to come down to buy, you and everybody else. Yeah. So yeah. You, you get a lower rate, but you pay a, a higher a higher price for the home. Whereas if, if you buy a home now, um, one, if you buy a home now and interest rates go up, you know, or, or they don't come down, you're, you're still buying the home at a, you know, conceivably a lower price than you will be in the future. Um, if rates do come down considerably and that loan, you're able to refinance that loan, well, you've locked in the lower price and now you get the benefits of the lower rate. So I think that the message is right now, we don't know what's going to happen with, uh, with any of this, mm-hmm. but lower rates will yield higher prices. Every time. So what do you say to the what, – what do you two say to the buyer that goes, man, these guys are crazy. There's no way prices are going to go up. You can't sit there and tell me prices are going to go up. And uh, I'd love to hear your opinion on that. I have my take on that. But what do you say to the person that goes, no, I, I don't believe that? Yeah, I, I, a lot of this goes to supply and demand. I mean, Absolutely. it's going to be market dependent. So we, we see across the United States markets very widely. Um, you look at some place like California, you've got – GDP slowing in California, home prices are already relatively high compared to the nation, mm-hmm. and you got people leaving that state and and relocating to greener pastures. Um, that's a market primed to have way more challenges than say Texas or Florida, where we see the opposite happening. The GDP is up in those states, so even though nationally we're we're having challenges in those states, they're producing more. We see inventory is not being built fast enough. New homes are not being built fast enough to support the incoming population as well as we have a lot of people that are coming of age to buy houses here. And so to me, I say, look, we don't have a lot of houses and if rates come down, we're going to have even fewer houses. And there's a lot of buyers that can relate to Mm -hmm. the feelings of missing out over the last two years. And so that's something that will be a challenge and we'll have to deal with. But nevertheless, I think that Bowie's prices is relatively high. And I think everything Daniel said makes a lot of sense to me. And the other, the other consideration I would say is, uh, and we talked about this a little bit in the, the past, just in general, there's not enough housing being built. Yeah. Um, but if you take a, a micro view of our market specifically, if there are the amount of people migrating into Florida, there's nowhere for them to live, whether it be they want to buy a home or they just want to rent. Um, if there's not enough housing, then we can also expect that rent, you know, rents may continue to go up, you know, considerably. Mm-hmm. And the other, you know, the other side of the coin is if you're, you know, if you're waiting to buy a home uh, because it's more expensive uh, than renting, um, that, that may not be the case, you know, in the relatively near future. So I think that um, the other component here is, hey, rent is a variable rate product. You know, if you want to think of it as a variable rate loan, you know, you have no idea what's going to happen with rents. Whereas you buy a home, maybe interest rates aren't where you want them, but you did just fix your housing cost. Right. You know what it is for 360 months. Sure. So, and I I just think that that's another consideration that maybe buyers aren't making is my rent's cheaper right now, but what does that look like in 
two years or three years or yeah, five and I mean, years. we just saw a statistic this morning. Okay, so rents were up 18% last year, last year. We know they're forecasted to be 6% greater than last year. So that's a 24% increase over two years. You know your mortgage isn't going to increase 24% over that time. So uh, that's a really good point. I also think that, uh, and, and I think you may have mentioned it earlier, but like if you're the buyer that says, I'm just going to wait for home prices to drop, I don't really believe you. Based on the news, based on all the negative information pumped in and all the social medias that, you know, anyone can kind of preach. Do you think you're the only person that thinks like that? Like the competition level is only going to get greater because you're one of thousands that think like that. And if if something like that was to happen, I think, Daniel, we've seen it before that, okay, prices, let's say they do drop. But then all of a sudden, if all the multiple offers come in because the demand went up, it's going to drive the price right back up. And so your thought process counteracts what you're trying to accomplish because the market's going to do that. And then what do you say to the person that says, I'm waiting for my rate to drop? I'm just going to wait till rates drop. What do you say to that person, Daniel? At that point, you're trying to time the market, right? Yeah. And that's a time, time old adage, you know, you can't time the market and everybody wants to obviously buy low and sell high. Um, but if, if you're a home buyer waiting for interest rates to drop, well, one, you're probably going to get that information lagging. Yeah. Meaning rates have already fallen. Uh, but two, back to the you and everybody else. You know, if there are tons of people over here waiting on rates to drop and rates drop and everybody comes back into the market at once, well, you're going to see prices go up and you're going right. to see a lot of the same challenges of people not being able to find a home. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas obviously right now, interest rates aren't where you want them to be, but you know, kind of an opportunity for buyers right now to be able to navigate the market, maybe negotiate concessions, you know, but get into the home now. And, you know, if, if, if the, if you're right, buyer and interest rates do go down, all the more reason to buy the home now and refinance it, um, you know, at a lower mm-hmm. loan amount. Then someone's going to be, you know, looking to to borrow to buy that same home when that time comes. Right, and I also think that you know when you take a look at what you just said there, the other thing is, you have all the power if you buy the home now. Rates drop, refinance your choice, or maybe you can strategize to get that lower rate now. Daniel, I know you've done a couple of excellent podcasts with us here talking about that seller strategy buy down or that 2-1 buy down to kind of go get that lower rate and ascertain and maybe buy some time until if you do the 2-1 until rates do drop, if that's what you believe. But at least you own the home at the price now versus what that future competition home price is going to look like three, six, eight months from now. Much different conversation that you're having. And so I would say to the buyer, again, you're not the only one. So great point with that any any finishing comments you want to make here alex as we kind of start to dovetail out of this episode yeah i mean i think one being being aware of what's going on listening to things like this is is hugely important but also one of the things we found last time things got competitive which it sounds like we think they probably will get competitive to some degree in the future is who you're working with as a realtor and a lender matter because that relationship not only gets you access to certain properties you may not have access to otherwise Mm -hmm. it gets you timely information on current market strategies. Uh, so I would just say making sure you're working with the top agent, making sure you've got um, a local lender like Bank of England working with you is going to be paramount going uh, forward. Nate. Great point. Daniel? Well, just to piggyback off that a little bit, you, you certainly can't time the market, but if you have really good information, you can make really informed decisions. Uh, so we're certainly not here to tell people that we're going to help them time the market. And, and when rates hit bottom, we're going to tell them that's the day because we don't know when that day is coming. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're if you're aware of what's going on, you're aware of what could happen and you start to see some of the signs and some of the data tell you that that, you know, maybe certain things are on the horizon, then you can really advise clients and try to give them really good advice and help to position them in a, in a, a place where they feel comfortable and they come out of winter. 
Yeah. So my takeaways from today are the following things. That if you think the economy is going to get bad, whether it's through inflation or a recession, guess what? Real estate goes up. If you think the economy is going to get better and real estate comes down, or excuse me, interest rates come down, we still see housing get better through that because Daniel mentioned something earlier in the podcast, which was sellers always absorb the new affordability in the market, whether it's brought to a new product, lower interest rates. We've seen it happen over and over again. But anyway, we cut it. Today, what I heard was this. We all think rates are going to drop. At what level? That's the question mark. Housing prices are going to go up. Are they going to go up double digits? Absolutely not. But they're not going to regress. They're not going to go backwards. Alex said it earlier. I think there's a greater chance of just things halting and stopping and no transactions, you know, less transactions taking place than an actual decline in the market. And it's all driven by the simple economic formula of supply and demand. Mm -hmm. We have a ton of demand, a limited amount of inventory, as Daniel described. We've been behind the new builds to population, new basically household formation ratio for quite some time now. Mm -hmm. And we have a generational group of buyers that are coming on in groves. It's not just happening a little bit here and there, it's in groves. And that's around the country, not just here in Jacksonville, Florida. So I think the combinations of that, plus the fact that we think rates are going to come back down, Daniel's point, don't try to time the market. Leave that up to the professionals. Um, I know the team over at Bank of England does a fantastic job with this. I would highly recommend getting with them. Alex, thank you for all your mm -hmm. data from the Market Distillery. It is greatly appreciated. Your insight's always appreciated. Daniel, you do a phenomenal job explaining products and a customer's point of view. It's always glad having you on the show here. Really appreciate it. And uh, for more information, please go to themarketdistillery.com. Also, reach out to Bank of England Mortgage at boejax.com. And, uh, Guys, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. I got one more shot, I'm going to make it. One more chance, I'm going to take it. I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it. I got one life to live, so I put